So this week, uh, Matthew chapter 4, that's going to be our text for today. If you'd like to open your Bibles, I'd, I'd invite you to do so. Matthew chapter 4, we're going to look at the first 11 verses this morning. Um, but as I, was, as I was working through this this week, um, uh, I came to this text, and uh, uh, really, as I read through it, and I started doing the work I usually do as I start preparing to preach it, this week it, it started out pretty easy. Um, but really, things started going pretty smooth. And earlier in the week, I kind of knew what I wanted to do with this text. I knew where we were going, and I, I knew kind of how the text laid out. I knew how I wanted to outline a sermon, and all that stuff was, was easy this week. Uh, and I, I wrote it, and really pretty early in the week, I had notes done, sent them off. Just so you all know, this is an opportunity for me to brag on Steve, and he doesn't want me to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway, because I love you, man. Um, <clears throat> you laugh. Do you not think I love him? I do love Steve. He says, yeah, wrap it up, Jared. Um, so... Uh, yeah, so pretty early in the week, I had notes ready, and just so, like I said, like just so you know, all this stuff doesn't happen just on its own. Um, this happens because I send my notes to Steve, and Steve takes them and he puts them in here, nice and pretty, and packages them up so that you all have these up here. Steve does an awesome job, and he doesn't ask for any credit or anything like that. So I just want to brag on Steve because I love Steve. And now that I've done that, I realize that also means that there's like, I don't know, a whole bunch of other people I could do that for. Um, so if I didn't say your name and you do stuff for a service, like, we just clap for you too. Does that count? Some people say yeah. Some people are like, nah, that doesn't count. Say my name. No, please don't do that. That's bad. Um, anyway, I was thinking about this. and I sent notes off to Steve and I felt like I was in a pretty good place this week. And Do you see that logo? I could give somebody credit for that, too. She's shaking her head. Uh, did you know Laura Lewis? I almost said Schoonover, but that's not your name anymore. She designed that. Isn't that cool? Yeah, look at that. Isn't that pretty? Man, that's just one of the many options she gave me. And I was like, yeah, that looks really good. So, yeah, anyway, awesome stuff. People do a lot. Um, so thank you to everybody who makes services possible and makes them happen and puts in time and effort and asks for no recognition at all because a lot of people do. Um, and that's part of being in the church, and I think it's awesome that people want to do that. So, um, all that to say, I had notes, I sent them off to Steve, and I felt like I was in a good place this week, but whenever I sent notes off, I was missing a part of my sermon. I, I didn't have an introduction, um, and I didn't know how to introduce the text, but I was like, it's okay, I'll figure it out later. Um, it, early introductions usually come pretty easy, so it, it's okay, I'll fill it in, and that's not something that I have to send to Steve, so I'll have it, um, it's okay. Um, Friday came. And Friday went and still hadn't figured out how I was going to introduce this text. And so you might be thinking, an introduction to a sermon, well, that's not that big of a deal, is it? Um, well, if you remember back to our Nehemiah series, one of the things I said was I was going to do my best to work on becoming a better preacher of the Word. I wanted to, I wanted to be a better preacher, and I kind of made a deal with you all. Um, I would do my, my best to work on my craft preparing and teaching the Word, if you all would work on your craft at, at learning and hearing the Word. Um, so you all remember that? Does that sound familiar to anybody? I got a couple thumbs up. Most of you are like, no, nah, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. That day you were not hearing. Um, that's okay. I probably wasn't presenting it well either. But... We, uh, I, I kind of made that deal with you all, and so I've really been trying to think through how can, I, how can I bring people in to engage them with the text, and that's where the whole weirdo thing came from, and I'm going to keep on using that because I don't know how many messages I've got about being weirdos. I got a card that said, we're just a bunch of weirdos, and I'm like, 
I still don't understand. Like, I just call y'all weird, and it resonates with everyone. But anyway, so that's where that came from. I'm trying my best to actually draw people in so that they're prepared to hear the word whenever we get to the word. Um, But this week, I couldn't do it. Friday came and went, and I still didn't have an introduction to sermon. And I'm like, how am I going to engage with people before we get to the text? And then Saturday... Saturday, yesterday morning, I was here. It was a good time. Just so you all know, there were 14 or 15 guys. I don't remember how many of us there were. 14 or 15 guys downstairs, all of us, with the purpose of trying to be more faithful teachers and preachers of the word. Like, it was a good time. But the morning was gone. And then we had family stuff yesterday afternoon, and I was running around taking care of that stuff. And before I knew it, it was 10 o'clock on Saturday night, and I still didn't know how to introduce this text. You all know, like... That's, that's not a good place to be. What am I going to say to these people in order to introduce them to the text that I'm about to preach? And I had no idea. And then I came down here like I do most Saturday nights. I was here, it was about 10 o'clock, and I just knew. It was funny how it happened. I just knew what I needed to say to introduce this text. But I didn't exactly know how to say it. So I'll be honest with you, I wrestled with how to say it for about a half hour. Um, before I finally concluded, like, here's what I need to tell you. The reason you should listen to what we're going to talk to, talk about for the next, I don't know, two hours is, that's not a joke, um, now you laugh. So what we're going to talk about for the next little bit is, is sin, but not just sin, but how to avoid the temptation to sin. Why does that matter? Well, here's why that matters. I guarantee, guarantee that before the day is over, you will have experienced dozens of temptations to sin. Dozens of times. I don't care where you are. I don't care what you got going on this afternoon. I can guarantee that there will be dozens of opportunities, dozens of temptations, pulling for your time, for your attention, for your affections, trying to pull you towards something that misses the mark that we're supposed to be aiming for. I guarantee there will be temptation today. No question in my mind. So why... How can I get you to engage? Well, did you know that Jesus came and he didn't give in to the temptations? Did you all know that? I hope that's not a newsflash to you. Some of you it might be. And if so, we believe that Jesus was sinless. He never gave in to the temptation to sin. That's what we believe. So, you want to know how to overcome those temptations? Because if I came around right now and said, how many of you have ever experienced temptation to sin? All of you are going to show your hands, at least if we're being honest. All of you have experienced temptation. And how many of you, if I came around and said, would you like to have the tools to overcome the temptation to sin? How many of you would raise your hands for that? Some of you just want to go on being sinners. That's bad. We'll work on that. That's a joke. I know it was a rhetorical question. But I think everybody wants to know, how do I overcome the temptation to sin? How does that happen? Well, you know, we claim to be followers of Jesus. And if we claim to be followers of Jesus, then let's follow Jesus. Let's do what he did. Let's look at how he overcame temptation. That's what we're going to look at today. So how am I going to introduce this? I don't have anything clever or witty. All I have to say is we have a perfect Savior who overcame temptation to sin. And if we want to be able to overcome the temptation to sin, let's look at what our Savior did. Let's look at what Jesus did. Let's follow him. And if we do that, then we have the tools we need to overcome the temptation to sin. Is it always going to be easy? No. Of course not. I don't believe it was easy for Jesus. But is it possible? Yes. There's a lot of Christians, a lot of professing Christians who walk around defeated as if they have no victory over temptation. Like, I just can't overcome this. Well, yes, you can. 
I'm not telling you it's going to be easy. But by resting in Christ, by following after our Savior, we have the tools to overcome the temptation to sin. So that's what I want us to look at today. That's how I'm trying to introduce what we're going to talk about for the next little bit today. We want to be like Jesus, and we want to be able to overcome temptation. So let's look at how Jesus did it. Would you all stand with me? Let's read God's Word together. Matthew chapter 4 will be our text. We'll look at the first 11 verses together this morning, and I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible like I do almost every week. Uh, So beginning in verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands, so that, your, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus told him, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and began to serve him. Thank God for his word, and you may be seated. So if we're going to overcome temptation, if we're going to overcome the temptation to sin, let's look at what Jesus did. Because I think he shows us how to do it. I think Matthew, as he's writing this, shows us how Jesus overcame these temptations. And I want to show you four ways to overcome it. Okay, first, Jesus was radically, he was radically dependent on the word. Jesus was radically dependent on the word of God. Okay, verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Okay, so here's Jesus, right? Last week we looked at the beginning of his public ministry as he publicly just declared this ministry of reconciliation that he came to bring between God and man, and things seem to be going pretty good, right? Everything's going according to plan, just the way you want it. That means that everything from here on out is going to be easy, right? Not quite. As a matter of fact, I just had a conversation with somebody this week, and I, I, I tried to encourage them, because they've been experiencing some, some trials, some struggles with sin. Um, it felt like they've just really been attacked. And I said, well, yeah. It's because you just publicly proclaim Jesus as your Savior. So Satan's going to do everything he can to discourage you, to dissuade you from following where you know you need to go. It's going to be difficult. You, you are now in the crosshairs of the enemy. And it's going to be a struggle sometimes. See, Jesus just publicly declared his ministry, and now, now that same spirit who descended on him like a dove, he's now leading him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, I want to be very careful here. I want to be very careful here, because we read this, and it would be tempting to say, well, is the spirit tempting Jesus? Is, is God tempting Jesus? What do you all think? No. No, he's not. Well, that's good. You guys got it right, so you get an A-plus for the day. 
Do we have a gold star slide? That'd be cool. We should do that. Um, anyway, so uh, he's, he's declaring this, and now, now we see he's being led by the wilderness. He's not being led by the wilderness to be tempted by God. Instead, God is leading him. As a matter of fact, God leads him here, but it's not God that's doing the tempting, is it? The text is very clear, very clear here, that it is Satan, that it is the devil that tempts him. And the reason we need to be so careful with that is because while it is the, while it is the Spirit's leading, it is not the Spirit who's doing the tempting. And that would actually be a contradiction to Scripture. And not only that, it would also be us challenging God's character. James chapter 1, verse 13 says very clearly, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. So whenever you're tempted with sin, it's not God tempting you. Let's not, let's not say that, because that's just not true. That would go against God's character. However, are there times where God's going to lead you to a place where you will be tempted? Of course. Look at Job. I mean, Job's sitting there minding his own business, and God shows up, and he's having this conversation with Satan, and he says, have you considered my servant Job? And then Satan goes after him. Goes after him. It's not God doing the tempting, though, and we need to make that very clear. But the Spirit does lead him to a place where he will be tempted. Devil's the one doing the tempter. Notice verse 3 actually calls the devil the tempter. Um, literally, it's being called the one, he's being called the one who puts to the test. But this isn't random. That's what we need to remember. This isn't some random event like, oh, well, I don't know why he's being tempted. There's no real purpose to this. Of course that's not what's happening. There's a purpose behind the tempting. There's a purpose for the Spirit leading Jesus to where he will be tempted. And the purpose here is for the new Israel that we should see, the new Israel, the Son of God, Jesus, who is a, the new and the better Israel. It's for him to come and do what the nation of Israel could not do and to remain faithful to the Father. The purpose is to show that he's the perfect Son. That's why he's being led here by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. But notice that Jesus wasn't just sitting around when he was tempted, was he? He wasn't just hanging out, nothing going on, just completely mindless, nothing happening. Instead, it says very clearly that he was fasting. Jesus is fasting here in the wilderness. Now, we talked about fasting a few months ago as we went through Nehemiah also. Um, but fasting, and just for a refresher, fasting is the giving up of food for spiritual purposes. Not just like a crash diet plan. It's giving it up for a spiritual purpose. So Jesus is here in the wilderness. He's fasting. He's given up food for 40 days and 40 nights for a spiritual purpose. To grow closer to his father. To, to be in communion with his father. So Jesus, what he's doing here is he's laying down this physical necessity for a greater spiritual necessity. Laying down this physical necessity for a greater spiritual necessity. And here is what I think might be the most obvious statement anywhere in the Bible. Like, maybe the most obvious thing, right? Verse 2, after he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Like, does anybody else read that and go, well, no duh, Matthew. Like, you ever gone, you ever, anybody gone 40 days without eating? I have not. I, I imagine to be hungry, right? So Matthew, it's like, did, was that necessary? Apparently it was, because the Spirit inspired him to write it. So I think there's a reason for that, though. I think there's a reason Matthew includes that. I don't think it's by accident or just like Matthew saying, well, I'm going to state the most obvious thing I possibly can just to mess with readers 2,000 years from now. I think there was a reason behind it, right? And I think the idea was to emphasize that Jesus, he had a body. He was a man, he took on flesh. We think of Jesus and we think of him as God, which is right. Like he is God, but he's in the flesh. See, Jesus had needs just like you and I do. 
He experienced physical urges just like you and I do. And he went 40 days without eating. And you know what? He was hungry. He was a man like we are. He came and took on flesh to live with us. So he had physical needs just like we do. So the tempter, the tempter comes and tells Jesus to turn stones into bread. And we're going to look at this temptation more here in just a moment. But I want to look at his response specifically in verse 4 for just a moment. Jesus responds to, to Satan here. He says, It is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, what's the point that Jesus just made with that statement? And I believe it's this. I believe it's this. Jesus is saying, I am relying more upon God's word than I am on physical food. I'm relying more on the word of God than on food. See, the word of God is what man must, what man must live on if we're going to truly live. If we're going to truly live. See, the physical food may sustain your fleshly body, but it's never going to satisfy your soul. Ever. Food will never satisfy you the way the Word of God can. It may bring you life, but it's never going to bring you eternal life. And see, through this statement, Jesus showed his radical dependence on the Word. He says, even more than I need food to sustain my body, I need God's Word to sustain my soul. I need Him to sustain myself. Now, how does that help us avoid temptation? Well, it, this is how it helps. Okay? Notice, the devil, the devil tempts Jesus three times, and every time, what does Jesus do? He responds with the word. Right? Three simple words. He says, it is written. Every time, he responds with these words. And I think the reason that many of us never experience victory over temptation is because we don't know how. We haven't equipped ourselves with the tool to over, tools to overcome temptation. We haven't taken the word and applied it to our lives. I said, God, how does your word shape who I am? See, I, I asked myself as I was looking at this, um, you know, what if Jesus had acted like we do and relied so heavily on his flesh to overcome temptation? Because I think we do oftentimes rely heavily on our flesh to overcome our own temptations. We, we see temptation around us and we're thinking, well, I'm strong enough. I'm, I can handle this. Like, I don't, need to, like, I don't need Jesus to overcome this one. Like, this is just a small thing. I can handle this. But then those things seem to be so persistent. Why is it that we rely so heavily on our flesh whenever we have something greater than that? So I asked myself, what would happen if Jesus had relied on our flesh like we often do? Well, the answer is, I believe he would have failed. I believe he would have failed if he was relying on the flesh. Because remember, Jesus was hungry. He was hungry. And if he relied on his flesh, he would have given in to his hunger. But instead, he relied on the word of God to see victory over sin. See, Jesus, Jesus reminds his disciples of this truth. that They need to rely on God, rely on, on the word of God because their flesh was weak. He says this in Matthew chapter 26, verse 41. He says, stay awake and pray, talking to some of his disciples. He says, stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. If we rely on our flesh, we're going to give in to temptation. If we're relying on our flesh. So we need to rely instead on the Word of God. And that's what we see Jesus do. He was radically dependent on the Word of God. So, if we want to overcome temptation, rely on the Word of God. Be dependent on the Word of God. Second, we see that Jesus was radically focused on His purpose. Radically focused on His purpose. See, in this first temptation, why was it wrong for Jesus to eat? I think that's a serious question we need to ask. Like, why... Why was this a temptation, right? Was it somehow sinful for Jesus to eat? Because again, does that mean that we need to go on a 40-day fast if we're going to be truly saved? Of course not. Of course not. At least I sure hope not, because if so, I'm not in, I'm not in the kingdom. 
Y'all, so that's bad news for me. So I'm sure hoping that it doesn't mean you have to go on a 40-day fast to be saved. And that's really bad news for some people who physically cannot do that. I don't think that's the point, though. Or does it mean that if we're going to eat, like we're here just a little bit, I plan on going downstairs and I plan on eating. Does that mean that I need to repent of my, my eating afterwards? No, of course not. I hope you know that that's not the point Jesus is trying to make or that Matthew's trying to make here. Obviously, that's not sinful. The reason, so, the reason this would have been so problematic for Jesus is because of the real temptation, which actually has very little to do with food. Now, that's the, the form that it takes here, but that's not the big problem. Eating isn't sinful for Jesus. So what is the problem? Well, instead, the problem is that the devil was tempting Jesus to do or to use his rightful authority for personal pleasure, for personal gain, for personal comfort. He was tempting Jesus to use the authority that Jesus had for his own comfort. That was the temptation here. See, we know that Jesus had power over creation, right? If you've read the Gospels, you've probably seen that Jesus has power over creation. Just a few examples. One, let's look at John chapter 1, verse 3. Um, we find that Jesus is actually the, the acting agent in all of creation. Right? It says all things were created through him, and apart from him not one thing was created that has been created. Jesus created everything. Everything that is in creation, everything material, was created through Jesus. Jesus has authority over creation. It's his. He made it. Okay? Second, let's, let's look and see some of the miracles that he had. And I don't have these up here on the slide, so you're just going to have to work with me here. There's a couple accounts where he's with a crowd of people, thousands of people. One time 5,000, one time 4,000. And they come and they say, well, the people are hungry. Let's give them something to eat. But they don't have much food, do they? No, they got a few loaves and a few fish. Now, one of two things has to be the case here. Either these are really big loaves and really big fish, or Jesus is exercising his authority over creation. One of those two things has to be the case. My guess is he's exercising authority over creation. Now, it may have been some really big fish, but I think we would have heard the fish stories about those. Okay? So, my guess is he's exercising authority over creation. Or think about the man who was born blind, right? Jesus was asked about this man, and when he is, he spits in the dust, he stirs it into mud, puts the dust on the man's eyes, and he restores the man's sight, exercising his authority over this man, a created being. We see Jesus clearly has authority over creation. Okay. But notice that here, whenever Satan tempts him, he has the authority to do what Satan is challenging him to do, doesn't he? Certainly. Certainly he has the authority to do so. But he doesn't because, because when, he, when he's asked to do this, the purpose, the purpose is wrong. See, every time Jesus exercises his authority over creation... Every time we see it in the scriptures, every time that happens, it's to show God's glory, and it's always done out of a love for others. Every time. He shows, he shows God's glory to people, and he does it out of a love for others. Every time he exercises authority over creation. But what the devil was doing here is he was trying to tempt Jesus to give up his service to God and to use his ability for his own selfish comfort. That's what Satan is challenging Jesus with. He says, but you can be more comfortable, Jesus. And you've got the power to do it, so just do it. Make yourself more comfortable. Like, make it, make it selfish. But see, what Jesus does is he rejects the temptation by remembering that glorifying the Father was his mission. That was his purpose. He was so focused on that purpose that he wasn't going to let anything get in the way of it, not even his own desires. And like Jesus, if we want to overcome temptation, we need to be focused on the purpose of our lives. 
We need to be focused on what we were created for, what we were made for. What were we made for? Well, we were made to glorify God and to enjoy Him. We were made to glorify Him and to enjoy His presence in our lives. And whenever we forget that purpose and we begin to pursue our own comfort, glorifying ourselves, that's when we have problems. Right? Whenever we're focused on glorifying God and enjoying His presence in our lives, it makes it a whole lot easier to avoid the temptation to sin. So instead of pursuing our own comforts, let's pursue the glory of God. We see that Jesus, to overcome temptation, He was radically dependent on the Word. He was radically focused on His purpose. Third, Jesus was radically committed to God's will. He was radically committed to God's will. Verse 5 says, Then the devil took him to the holy city. Um, We assume that's Jerusalem. Took him to the holy city. Had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And then something crazy happens, right? This This is wild. Something absolutely wild happens here. And I'm not being sarcastic. I think that this is wild. Just so you know, it's bad. I have to tell you I'm not being sarcastic. I need to cut back on the sarcasm a little bit maybe. Wow, I just realized that. So I'm sorry to everybody I've offended now. Okay, so um, something crazy happens. And I really do think that this is wild. Satan, right? right? The devil, it says, quotes Scripture. Satan quotes Scripture. Now, this was a mind-blowing revelation to me whenever I, first, whenever I first understood this. Did you know that Satan knows the Bible? Did you all know that? Satan knows the Bible. And there are times I worry that maybe Satan knows the Bible a lot better than I do. So, we need to be careful. Because I believe one of his favorite methods is to deceive by distorting and twisting the Word of God. But did God really say... Does that sound familiar to anybody? Pretty sure he said that in the garden back in Genesis. Did God really say this? Is that really what it says? One of Satan's favorite methods is to deceive by distorting and twisting God's Word. So he says, he says here, for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, I read this and I was curious. Um, I, I was curious here. Did Satan faithfully quote the text? Did he faithfully cite scripture? And there's actually some debate among scholars as to whether he did or he did not. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you my opinion. I don't believe he did. He actually left part of it out. See, what he's doing is he's quoting from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And he's almost word for word. He's very close. But he leaves part of it out. He omits a part that I believe is very important to that psalm. Um, uh, So important that I actually asked Steve. I asked Steve if he could put a slide together. um, that looks something like this. Where we've got Psalm 91 over here and we've got Matthew 4, 6. This is what Satan says. And that's the psalm that he's quoting. Now, if you read through those, you'll notice that there's an omission in Satan's quote. It says, he will give his angels orders concerning you. But the psalm here says, to protect you in all your ways. To protect you in all your ways. But Satan decided, well, I'm not going to quote that part. And there's a problem with that, isn't there? There's a problem. See, Satan leaves out an important part that shifts the purpose of this angelic protection from God's purpose, instead, to a self-centered purpose. Right? He leaves out that to protect you... In all your ways. And instead, he's making it about my ways. Not your ways, but in my ways. We'll see if God can protect you in my way. The way I want this to happen. Satan is distorting the purpose, the the words of the psalm. Did he quote scripture? Sure he did. Every word that he said is straight from scripture. 
but he twisted it. He manipulated it to say what he wanted it to say. Now, Psalm 91 is absolutely true. God could care for Jesus in this way. Absolutely true. And notice that Jesus doesn't argue that. Doesn't argue it, does he? Doesn't say, well, no, that's not really what that psalm means. That's not what that psalm says. Because it's true. Could God care for him this way? Absolutely he could. But instead, Jesus recognizes that Satan is again trying to distort the word by changing the point. And Satan was trying to push Jesus to test God. That's the point. See, the reason this is so important is, I mentioned just a moment ago, that in a way, Jesus is sort of a new Israel. He's the Son of God, right? And before that, if you read about Israel, you'll see that they're called the sons of God. They're God's children. And now, Jesus, the Son of God, comes as the child of God. And where Israel failed, Jesus would be faithful, See, back in Exodus chapter 17, the Israelites, they were given a test. The people were out in the wilderness, much like Jesus is, and they have no water. And it says that they are thirsty. Another obvious statement in Scripture. You go for a while without water, guess what? You're probably going to be thirsty. And that's what they have going on here. They're all thirsty. So they test the Lord, the Bible says, by demanding water. While they tested the Lord, Jesus here recognizes the temptation to test the Lord and notices and recognizes the the deception that Satan is bringing. And Jesus does something very simple, something very simple, yet incredibly important, and that is this. He used Scripture to help him interpret Scripture. He uses the Bible to understand the Bible. That may sound really obvious to some of us, but it's incredibly important. We can pull any verse we want out of the Bible and make it say virtually whatever we want it to say. You can find something in the Bible to support whatever you want to do. Does that make it right? Well, no, because what we have to do is we have to use the Bible to help us understand the Bible. One part of the Bible will help us understand the rest of the Bible. And Jesus recognizes this. And he knew that God had a purpose and to test God to fulfill Scripture in the way he wanted to or to manipulate God's Word into making it say whatever he wanted it to say would be to test his God, which was a violation of a command from Deuteronomy 6.16. He knew, I'm not supposed to test God. So to test God to fulfill this Scripture in the way I want him to would be to push God to do something that maybe he didn't intend to do. He knew that God's will was more important than his will. Recognizing that it would be a violation of Deuteronomy 6.16, he recognized that God had a purpose in mind for that and said, no, I am not going to test the Lord my God. I will not test the Lord. See, the truth is, we're called to trust God, not test God. But a lot of us want to test God. But we're not called to test, we're called to trust And again, I think we do this a lot. Uh, I think this is maybe one of the most common pitfalls we fall into. Like, God, well, I'll I'll trust you. I'll follow you more if you'll just do this. Right? Like, God, your word says that that you can overcome this. Well, just just do this right here in my life right now in the way that I want it to happen. And I'll I'll, I'll follow you more. I'll do whatever you want. Just so you all know, I'm not just trying to beat you up. This is something I fall into all the time. All the time. I, I get these thoughts like, God, I'll, I'll, I'll give my life if you'll just fill in the blank. Anybody else ever done that? Am I the only one? Okay, so there's a couple of y'all. Yeah, we want to take God's word. We want to manipulate what he said before. And we say, well, God, what you said you would do, whatever it is. 
You said that you'd bring comfort, but I'm still stuck here in this sorrow. Where are you? My God, I, I, and I don't think it's wrong to come to him in sorrow. Don't misunderstand. Bring your sorrow to Jesus. Absolutely. But whenever we start saying, God, you said that you would remove sorrow, so remove it the way that I want you to. That's where the problem comes in. That's where the problem comes in. Our call is to trust God in whatever he brings, whatever he has in store for us, and trust that he has good that's going to come from it. So, we see that to overcome the temptation, Jesus was radically dependent on the word. He was focused on his purpose. He was committed to God's will, even above his own. And then finally, I know this doesn't fit with the trend we've got here. Um, That's because I'm not a very good preacher. But um, Jesus patiently persevered in purity. A lot of P's. Try to say that three times fast. He patiently persevered in purity. Verse 8. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. See, I think this final temptation is really pretty simple. I think it's really pretty simple. Um, At least from our perspective. I'm not saying it's simple for Jesus to overcome because, again, he was a man, had flesh just like we do. And (laughs) I think Jesus was tempted with this. But he overcame the temptation. But it's simple because we know the end of the story. And whenever we know the end of the story, here's what we find. We find what Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 say. It says, So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know the end of the story. There's going to come a day where every tongue, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. We know that. We know that. And I'm sure Jesus knew that. But still, it would have been difficult. And in the end, we know that Jesus will rule over every nation, over every tribe, over every people, right? Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we see this, this great scene in Revelation. It says that there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one can number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Standing before Jesus, all of this, this multitude standing before him, he's going to have the glory that he's going to get anyway. But Satan, what he's doing here, he comes and he offers a shortcut. Offers a shortcut. He says... You can have all the kingdoms and all their splendor. Jesus is going to get those anyway, right? We just, we just read the end of the story. Jesus is going to have every nation, every tribe, every language bowing before him anyway, right? Okay, so what is Satan really tempting him here with? Like, what, what's the point? What's he tempting him with? Well, I think it's pretty simple. It's a shortcut. Satan is saying, I will give you everything the Father has offered you. I'll give you everything the Father has offered you. But I'm going to do it quicker and without the pain of the cross. That's what Satan's tempting him with here. I'm going to do it quicker and without the pain of the cross. But the problem is this. Is Jesus, Jesus, without the cross? I think that makes sense. Is Jesus who he says he is without the cross? No. No, he's not. See, Satan, Satan only has a temporary reign. He only has a temporary reign. And in the end, he is completely and utterly defeated. Again, we have the end of the story. Satan will be completely and utterly defeated. But see, I think this kind of temptation is tricky. Um, I think this kind of temptation is a little bit tricky, especially for us. See, we see a shortcut, um, and there's any number of examples I could use here. It's a way to make an easy buck. It's a quick way out of a struggle, or, you know, there's a hard conversation we don't want to have. Even maybe that's the thing that we know that we need to do, but we're like, you know what, there's, a, there's an easier way out. 
So let's just do this. And in the end, the result's going to be the same. This is just easier, right? And we see this, we see this, and we're like, okay, well, let's just do this. See, actually, I say it's an easy way out. Um, Cool. Well, I'll just talk louder. Hey, I'm back. Now I'm yelling at y'all. That's exciting. So anyway, um, so Wearsby points out that this word that says um, to worship me, the Satan's tempting and whist says bow down and worship me, um, it indicates that it's just a one-time thing. Essentially what Satan is saying is just bow down and worship me this one time. This one time and I'll give you all the kingdoms with all their splendor. All of these things are yours. Just this one time. He's tempting him with a shortcut. It's like, it's just this one time. It's not that big of a deal. Just bow down this one time and you can bypass the cross and you can have all the glory, all the splendor, all of this stuff. It's all yours. Just bow down and worship me one time. How often do we have those kinds of temptations? Like, just, it's not that big of a deal. Like, don't worry. This, the temptation for this sin, it's not that big of a deal. It's okay. It's just one time. I'll just give in this once. And look at what you're going to gain from it. Okay, tell this one little white lie and look at what we're going to gain. Look at what we're going to gain. Or sacrifice somewhere morally. And you know what? But then I get this promotion and I'll do something really good with the, the increased money I make. Like, it's all going to be good. It's just one little temptation. One little thing. Or you know what? I'm just going to sacrifice this one time. And, but it's, but look, at, look at the end result. Like, doesn't the end justify the means? Y'all ever been tempted with something like that? Am I the only one? I don't think so. Um... But that's what Satan is tempting Jesus here with. See, I think oftentimes, though, um, things for us are a lot like they are with Jesus. Excuse me. I think oftentimes God has ordained that we will endure a time of struggle, a time of suffering, before we see the end result. Right? Jesus was going to rule over every kingdom, every tribe, every nation. But God had ordained a time of suffering a time of trial for him before he got there. Satan's saying, bypass the trial. You can have all the other stuff anyway. But God has often, I think, ordained times where we'll go through the trials, through the suffering, but really it's to build our character. That's what James says. It's to build our character. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 actually says what we're talking about right now. It says, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. He gives us the promise. He gives us this promise of restoration, being established, being strengthened, being supported. But then he says, after you have suffered a little while. See, God has often ordained the trial before we, before we see the reward. Is that because that he doesn't care? No, it's because it's going to build perseverance, which is going to build hope. It's going to build our character. He's building something in us. But see, I find Jesus' response and very interesting here. See, Satan had asked him to bow down and worship him. But Jesus, he responds by saying, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the reason I find that interesting is Satan never asked Jesus to serve him, did he? Never asked Jesus to serve him. He just said, worship me. Well, why is that important? Well, Jesus knows, and I think this is something we need to learn. Jesus knows that we serve whatever we worship. We serve whatever we worship. 
Now, I would argue we don't worship, we don't always worship what we serve, but we always serve what we worship. Always. And Jesus knows that to bow down and worship Satan would be to serve Satan, to serve his purposes. So again, Jesus here, he quotes from Deuteronomy and says, Regardless of the trials before I suffer, before I enter into the Father's glory, I will not worship anyone or anything other than the Father. I won't worship anyone or anything. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And here we watch Jesus patiently persevere. Patiently persevere, knowing that the cross is coming. Yet he perseveres through the trial and remains pure and holy and remains perfect before the Father. So what? Well, first question is, do we have that kind of faith? Do we have that kind of faith? One that would say, I will worship the Lord my God and serve him only regardless of the struggles I face. Jesus knew what was coming, right? Jesus makes it clear. He gives multiple predictions of his crucifixion. He knows what's coming. He knows it's going to be hard. Are we willing to follow him saying, regardless of whatever, whatever I have to face, I will worship the Lord only? Are we so committed to Jesus that we're willing to forsake everything else, even sometimes good things, and say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue his purposes alone, nothing else. Everything else is secondary. Even if it's a good thing, I'm going to pursue Jesus so that I can experience the best things. Are we so focused on glorifying God by loving one another and sharing the good news that we're able to get past the many distractions that we see, the shortcuts that we might want to take? Are we willing to do that? Because that's what we're called to do, to know Christ and to live in the grace that he offers. Um, Now, I'm going to try to wrap this up here pretty quick, but uh, I've said an awful lot about overcoming temptation uh, an awful lot about overcoming temptation, and uh, I think I, maybe I should have led with this, but that's okay. Um, the truth is this. You are not strong enough to overcome temptation on your own. You're not. You are not strong enough to overcome temptation on your own. And that's exactly why Jesus came, right? Exactly why he came. It's because on our own, we're not going to make it. You're not going to overcome temptation. Unless we're restored, unless we're renewed, we're not going to make it because the flesh is weak. See, but where we are oftentimes like Israel, unable to overcome the challenges of life without sacrificing our own morals, without sacrificing our own purity, where we're unable to do that, Jesus has come and overcame the temptation. He has come and overcome the temptation. He's the true Israel, the true Son, the true Savior that came to bless all the nations. He's the one that came to do all of those things. And I don't know how many times I've caught myself doing what Paul rebukes the Galatians for doing exactly this thing. I don't know how many times I catch myself doing this. Paul, talking about the Galatians here, he says in Galatians 3.3, he says, Are you so foolish? After beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? How many times do we fall into this trap? We say, I come to Jesus and I need him for salvation. But you know what? Now that I'm saved, I'm going to go on by the flesh. Now I just need to pick myself up and I need to live better and I need to overcome all these temptations on my own. I need to, I need to be better. How many times do we do that? Where we started by the Spirit, now we're trying to complete it in the flesh. See, the gospel is the point, not just of salvation, not just the door to get in. It's also the sustaining power throughout all of it. You want to know how to overcome temptation? It's rest in the gospel. 
Rest in the good news of Jesus. Follow after him and trust in his grace in us. Trusting that his grace is sufficient for us. And whenever we come to him in our weakness, whenever we fall at the foot of the cross saying, I'm not strong enough for this, he exchanges our weakness for his strength. And if we want to overcome temptation, then it's, I think it's really pretty simple. We come to the one. We come to the one who did it perfectly. We come to Jesus. We come to him. The truth is I would be embarrassed if I, uh, if I really had to admit and let everybody in this room right now see how weak I am. I would be embarrassed. But Jesus came and he overcame the weakness of my flesh. He overcame the weakness of your flesh. And by faith in him, um, we too, I believe, can be overcomers. We can overcome any temptation, not on our own strength, but the strength that comes through knowing him, by trusting in him, by following him. So if we want to be overcomers, overcoming temptation, overcoming sin, overcoming death, overcoming hell, it's not found in your own strength. It's found in Jesus and only in him. That's what I've got for you all this morning. Let's pray. Father, um, I thank you for this word. I thank you that you show us how to overcome the temptations uh, that we face. Uh, But even more than showing us how to overcome temptation, Lord, I I thank you that you sent your son to overcome the temptation that, that would overcome us. Father, I thank you that you did what only you can do and you lived the life that we couldn't live. And even more than that, you died the death that we deserved and you offer us life. So Lord, for that we praise you. Um, Lord, and I, I, don't want, I don't want this time of Bible study just to be something saying do better or live more clean or somehow be more pure, although I do believe that purity is important. So Lord, I pray that you would drive that point home. But even more than that, Lord, I pray that you would let this picture of Jesus overcoming temptation drive us back to him. That it would drive us to the cross, that it would drive us to Calvary, that we would see that we need a perfect Savior to overcome any, any failures that we have. Past, present, future, God, I pray that we would rest in Jesus, that we would come to him and see that he's the purity that we really need. So, Father, I pray that you would make that evident to us, that we would see that truth, and then that we would walk in that newness of life, following our Savior and overcoming temptation along the way, just simply because of the one that we're with. So, Father, I pray that you would help us, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.